Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Marlena Seven Bremner, who is a self-taught oil painter, author, poet, and musician who explores esoteric themes arising from her study and practice of hermeticism, alchemy, magic, astrology, and mythology. Uh, Seven developed her painting career in the Pacific Northwest, uh, showing her work both in group and solo exhibitions along the West Coast and internationally, and now resides in the desert of New Mexico. She is the author of Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres, and the upcoming book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. Seven, uh, welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, uh, I think the last time I interviewed you was like five years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, it's been a minute. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you've been up to a lot. You, you, uh, you moved to the desert. You painted i assume many cactuses i don't know did you ever paint a cactus actually no i have not painted a cactus yet no do you think you might um these are the kinds of questions that i have for you they're all about cactuses you know i would like to and maybe if i was like working on a mars themed painting or something i would squeeze some cactuses in there i kind of everything depends on you know what planetary influences I'm working with, or if I'm inspired by a dream or something. So it's not so much like, oh, that's a pretty cactus. Mm -hmm. I want to paint that. It's like coming from a different place for me. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I would love to paint a cactus. That would be great. They're so beautiful. It's hard to, it's hard to say that I wish you would uh, go out and get more inspired by Mars, but you know, maybe. (laughs) Well, it is uh, Mars day, isn't it? It is Mars day today. Wait, yeah. is it? Jeez, I'm having a hard time with the calendar. It is. <laughs> yes, yep. today. <laughs> today is Tuesday. Um, you know, for those of you out there in the audience who um, haven't run across Seven's work before, you know, I said in her intro that she's a self-taught oil painter, which is a very brief description of how incredible her artwork is. And I'm talking about you in the third person, even though you're sitting right here. But uh, yeah, I mean, your art is incredible. Uh, we're not really, we're going to, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit today, but um, I don't think that uh, you would be doing yourself a disservice audience if you took a moment to go and visit uh, Seven's website at, what's your website? Um, it's just my name, marlena7bremner.com. Yeah. Yeah. Like go check it out. Go check it out while you're listening to the episode. Yeah, oh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, but the, but you know her artwork is incredible. It's super esoteric and alchemical, and some of it is like strangely detailed with lots of weird little intricacies and things that just. I mean, they do a really good job showcasing your knowledge, Seven, and the depth of study and the depth of work that you've done to like get to this point. Uh, but then you know stacked on top of it is the fact that you are a self-taught oil painter, which just makes it. Uh, both impressive and envy-inducing. Like, mm. how the hell? <laughs> how the hell did you get that skill? <laughs> I mean, I know you did it through lots of practice, but <laughs> uh, okay. So your books, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, your first book. Uh, you've been working on that one for a long time now. Like we talked about it. 
uh, a couple years ago, a few years ago, I think, when you were first working on it, or maybe when you'd been yeah. working on it already for a while. Uh, how long did that take you? Oh, man. I mean, it's a culmination of so many years of study and practice. But I think when we spoke, which probably was about five years ago, I know I had a bunch of it already started and different ideas about what mm -hmm. the book might be. I think I had like several different books in mind and wasn't quite sure where I was headed with it. So at that time, it still hadn't quite coalesced into the form that it's in now. Yeah, that didn't really start to happen until after I moved out to the desert. And I kind of was able to slow down a little bit because life was really hectic and busy for me up in the Northwest. So I kind of needed to uh, go to the quiet, vast still desert in order to like consolidate all of these ideas and complete the book. But yeah, many, many years in the, in the process. Mm -hmm. So the book itself, it kind of, um, I've been reading it and I haven't gotten super far into it, but it starts off with this really excellent and kind of easy introduction into uh, hermeticism where you kind of like, you know, present some of the basic texts and the basic concepts and a little bit of the history as you were writing it, did you, like, how, <clears throat> how much of that ended up being, like, brand new research for you? Like, how how deep into the uh, hermetic wormhole had you been uh, sucked before, before that part of the book? <laughs> well, I kind of came to that through my interest and in study of alchemy um, and wanting to understand where alchemy was rooted, you know, and sort of the history behind it and the spiritual, mystical, theological concepts that uh, form the foundation of alchemical work. And so that's what brought me into the study of hermeticism. So yeah, that did come a little bit after, um, especially in terms of just researching the history of it. Um, that was definitely a new exploration for mm -hmm. me. And, um, but I think that was really important. And I think it's important also for people that are being introduced to this to kind of have an idea of where it comes from and to get the full scope of what hermeticism is from the roots to the modern day. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that it is important. It is, you know, kind of uh, not sure that that uh, people always have a really good appreciation of how uh, intertwined uh, hermeticism and alchemy are, right? Like, a lot of the foundational texts are the same, you know, and, you know, I mean, like the Emerald Tablet is probably like the best example of that where, mm -hmm. um, where you have like a hermetic text that is explicitly also an alchemical text that really sort of ties them together. Since you got started with alchemy first, and since, you know, those sorts of like alchemical and astrological themes are just, you know, deeply infused into your artwork, like it's, it's obvious that not only uh, have you spent a lot of time understanding them, but that, you know, the, the themes and the meaning have uh, really kind of like resonated with you and been inspiring to you. Um, did you, uh, as you sort of uh, expanded your exploration into hermeticism, did that, did, did you feel like there were fundamental changes in your understanding of alchemy? Well, certainly, certainly. Um, my exploration of hermeticism has definitely deepened my appreciation of alchemy and my understanding of it. And the more that I continue mm -hmm. to look at the similarities between hermetic principles and um, the hermetica and, you know, the whole cosmological framework of hermeticism and the way that alchemy views the world, the more similarities that I find. And I think one of the things that I really notice is the similarity between, say, the Philosopher's Stone in alchemy and the concept of the Philosopher's Stone mm -hmm. and the hermetic concept of gnosis or God-knowing or true self-knowledge. And that these two things are not really right, that, right. that separate. It's just that the alchemists they took these very spiritual, mystical ideas and they infused them into matter, you know, and so everything was seen through the lens of matter. And so instead of gnosis, this sort of vague uh, concept, you have this physical stone that's, you know, indestructible and um, impervious mm -hmm. to fire. And at the same time, that sort of gnosis and that spiritual mm -hmm. knowledge is 
also indestructible. And it's something that we can carry with us through any flames of transformation that we might be going through. Well, I was just sort of thinking, you know, that, that point about the philosopher's stone is, is I think super useful because uh, one of the big challenges with, you know, approaching hermeticism, especially like the classical stuff uh, in terms of like trying to eke out some kind of practice is there just isn't, there isn't a ton of material. You know, the hermetic is fairly short, the emerald tablet's fairly short, you know, even if you include all of the fragments and stuff, it's, it's tough mm -hmm. to, it's tough to kind of like figure out what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to start. But alchemy does kind of give you, you know, sort of like a, a physical practice or a physical approach that you can, you know, at least use as a jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, people might get turned off by the idea that you need to have like a physical laboratory to engage with alchemy on the physical level. But I think as long mm -hmm. as we're engaging in some way with the physical world and making those connections between what's happening within us and what's happening outside of us, between the microcosm of the human body and the macrocosm of the celestial spheres, between our own consciousness and the matter that we're working with, um, then we can apply alchemical principles to pretty much anything that we do, whether that's just uh, working on a um, physiological level through meditation and watching the changes in our physical vessel of our body and our energy body. Um, or if we're working with, you know, a visual medium an art or something like that, or working with sound or sculpture or words, any of these things we can apply these processes to. And in effect, you know, follow the stages of alchemical transmutation to discover the philosopher's stone for ourselves, And it's really the, the mm -hmm. essence of that process is that relationship between, um, spirit and matter. I also think that there's a, there's a really big part of it. That's just so difficult to understand until you do it, you know, watching sort of, you know, how your paintings progress or how you, how just themes in your paintings have progressed. Like it's, it's obvious that, not only are you doing the work, but like the painting is part of the work. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, do other types of physical alchemy? Like, are you have you successfully transmuted uh, parts of New Mexico into gold? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you're asking if I practice physical laboratory alchemy, the answer is no. But I have had exposure to that and training in that. Um, I just don't have my own laboratory and don't really feel mm -hmm. the call to that at the moment um, because I find such, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, I find that painting really helps me to work through these alchemical processes. And that's the medium for me currently. Maybe at some point I'll have a lab. Mm -hmm. But I do think that understanding the processes of alchemy um, has helped me to transmute my reality many, many times over. Um, and to take mm -hmm. any situation and be able to find the gold within it, you know, the perfection within it. So then, uh, the book, okay. So I haven't gotten to the end of the book yet. Uh, you do sort of like describe, uh, the journey through the seven spheres, uh, mm -hmm. in the book. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what the, uh, the journey entails or how you, um, or how it, how it manifests for you, how you sort of mm. work with that journey? Hmm. Um, well, as you know, but maybe some of the listeners don't, the seven spheres are, um, related to the seven traditional planets. So the seven planets that are visible to the naked eye. So we've got Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the sun, Venus, Mercury, and the moon. And the human being, as it descends into matter, it's said to pass through these different planetary spheres. And with each one, it takes on different energies of the spheres and these energies kind of guide and direct us. And these are the rulers of fate, these seven planets. And the idea in Hermeticism is that we can transcend these seven spheres and de-energize them and then rise up into a greater sphere known as the eighth sphere or the Ogdoad. And this is also called the um, creative sphere and the sphere where we are, we return to our true power as creators. So basically these seven planetary 
spheres or energies are affecting us. And the more conscious we can become of these effects, the more uh, agency we have over our own fate. And so for me, working with the planets is usually whatever issue I have going on, um, you know, because we're always cycling through different energies and um, processes in our lives and things come up that we thought, you know, maybe we dealt with already and they come up again. And so um, we have these, you know, issues that we work out. And for me, what I do is I try to figure out which planet the issue aligns with. And so I'll look at um, emotional things, mental things, physical things, and try to um, narrow it down to a specific planet. So say it has something to do with relationships and I'm feeling maybe creatively blocked or something. I would look at um, the sphere of Jupiter, which relates to the sacral chakra and the human energy body. And I would think about um, the emotions that are coming up with that. And then maybe I would, you know, try to creatively engage with Jupiterian energy, or maybe I would um, invoke Jupiterian energy to help me balance out whatever needs to be balanced in my life. Or maybe there's too much Jupiterian energy and I need to balance it out with Saturnian energy and some boundaries and limitations and structure. So I'll look at, you know, the direct, um, planetary energy that's at play, but also what maybe is lacking and what maybe I need to bolster up to help balance things out. And at the same time that I'm doing this, um, I'm listening to messages from nature, messages through dreams from the unconscious and getting as much information on a symbolic level as I can to try and understand the scope and the breadth of what this planetary energy is trying to help me see or trying to help me understand about my reality. And all of this converges mm -hmm. together and eventually will come into some sort of, um, creative composition, whether that's a painting or a piece of writing or a poem or a song. And, um, then once that is created, it communicates even more to me and I can go even deeper with it. And, um, especially with a painting, which usually takes me months to complete, there's a sort of dialogue that unfolds where I don't know what's going to happen with the painting, but it tells me what it wants as I'm going along with it. And that helps me change and transmute as the painting is transmuting before my eyes. So that's, that's a little bit about how I personally oh. work with the planets. Yeah. Um, but in the book, mm -hmm. I really wanted to convey like for each planet, just give kind of an overall view, looking at it from a mythological lens, um, psychological, alchemical, magical, and, you know, relating that to the esoteric anatomy of the body and to nature so that people could just get a feeling for each of the planets, you know, to begin to understand how they might be affecting them and which ones, um, they might need to focus on. You were talking sort of about like the cyclical nature of some of these issues. I mean, you know, we are dealing with spheres and I guess you always do have to come around, come back around to the same spot at some point, but do you ever find older pieces of artwork that, that might represent, you know, work with a sphere energy of one of the spheres that you, that you want to go back to, like, I don't know, years later, like, do you ever, do you ever look at some of your old art and be like, this isn't done yet? <laughs> Um, well, not, not really, because I work on things, um, until I feel like they're absolutely done. <laughs> um, that's wow. the perfectionist in me is like, I just, it's hard for me to, to know when to stop until suddenly I just look at it and I'm like, there's nothing left to do, you know? Um, but sometimes I do look back to huh. older, older themes of different pieces that I've done. And it's like, I want to return to those themes and maybe do something new around the same theme. Um, but it's not so much that I want to continue working on any of the paintings because I've already reached that level of completion, which took me a long time to get to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and then what about, okay. Now, I mean, writing is sort of, uh, a different monster than, than painting. Um, mm -hmm. 
and you know i just know you know i mean when i write it you know i can keep editing the same piece forever it's hard to know when it's finished i always feel like oh god i think you know what i think what the problem is painting uses a visual language and visual metaphor and writing you're trying to be like really direct (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know it's hard to for me at least it's really hard to get the feeling that i have uh that i have found like the right combination of words to you know translate the images in my head into the images in somebody else's head through you know a a an imperfect medium yeah i hear that i um i love writing and i've always you know written and painted um side by side, you know, I'll get inspired by things that come through in a painting. And then I want to explore those symbols and research and the way that I kind of process information is to write it out. And so that's basically how the books came together was just me studying and wanting to understand things more deeply. And so writing about them. Um, but when I was on a deadline for the books, I had to focus solely on writing for the first time. And I couldn't, do both anymore. I couldn't Mm -hmm. paint and write. And so I found myself in a completely different world because like you're saying, it's like you want, things need to make sense when you're writing. Things don't necessarily need to make sense Mm -hmm. when you're painting. You know, I can go really far out there with painting and my mind doesn't have to be like rooted to this reality, you know, but when you're writing, you're trying to convey ideas in a way that's going to make sense to other people. So you have to be really grounded in a sense in this reality because you're you know you're trying to communicate (laughs) um but at the same time yeah yeah in in a way to to inspiration and influence you know so it it was a very different process for me than painting it's all it, it is almost kind of like the curse of writing you know um i mean you can go way out there you can write poetry but if you write poetry to teach somebody hermeticism, you're just going to end up with like an emerald tablet. and Everybody's going to argue about it for 2000 years. (laughs) 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 So hot on the heels of your first book, uh, the hermetic hermetic philosophy and creative alchemy, you have a second book coming out, the uh, hermetic marriage of art and alchemy. How did you uh, swing that? How did you get a second book out so quickly? (laughs) What's going on? Well, the truth is, (laughs) (laughs) that originally it was supposed to be one book. And when I got the publishing deal, they asked me to break it up into Mm -hmm. two books. And at first I was like, oh my God, how could I possibly Uh do that? And then I realized pretty quick that it broke very nicely into two separate books. And I'm super happy that they had me do that because it helped me to kind of um, explore some, some things that otherwise I probably wouldn't have space I wouldn't have had space to explore, you know? Yeah. That's really cool that they, um, you know, that they had so much faith in what you were doing that, that they suggested such a thing. Cause I, I do actually remember talking to you, I think before your first deadline where you were, and you were oh, yeah. kind of like, Oh no, I've got, you know, a million words and they only want 200,000 or something <laughs> like that. Like you had, you had, uh, you had just written, so much stuff and um yeah yeah so i'm that's that's awesome uh, i haven't uh, had a chance to look at um with this one at all but it's, it's coming out this july right yeah yeah it's being released in july um you can pre-order it now on the inner traditions website um and given the title about uh the the hermetic marriage of art and alchemy um i feel like it's something it, the, the the subject matter must be something that we've just already been talking about but how do you think it kind of um follows on like you were sort of saying like there was more that you wanted to write originally that you or more that you wanted to explore that you kind of got to Mm -hmm. uh look at more deeply like what were some of the topics that you um expanded on um well so the first book i was able to focus more on hermeticism and to go deeper into the history of it than I would have Mm -hmm. been able to do. And the second book, I was able to um, spend quite a bit of time exploring art history and looking at specifically um, four different art movements from romanticism through symbolism up to surrealism. And 
to kind of look at the ways that the occult has influenced those movements, but also alchemy. And then to also look at the ways that different artists have, um, either employed alchemy as metaphor or referred to hermetic concepts or, um, even directly expressed alchemical principles through their art or through their life. So that was a really fun exploration for me. And it kind of helped, um, it set a foundation for the rest of the book, which is exploring the four stages of the great work of alchemy. And, you know, because I'd explored the history of these different art movements, I was able to then, you know, refer to specific things from those periods through the alchemical chapters as reference points. And so I think for any artist Hmm. of any medium, it's going to be a very interesting um, exploration and yeah. If I had done this all as one book, it would have been hard to go that deep into the history of these things. But uh, You know, the movements you were describing, like that takes us uh, pretty well into the 20th century. What mm-hmm. kind of uh, alchemical themes were you seeing then? Did, uh, was it kind of inspired by Jung's approach to alchemy or was it people who were kind of looking at their own sort of stuff, do you think? Well, with the Surrealists, they were much more interested in Freud. Um, and so his exploration of the unconscious and of dreams and, you know, they were of the mind that whatever we're not conscious of is basically driving us. And these unconscious factors and shadow factors are the root cause of, you know, war and, um, aggression in the human species. And so the idea behind Mm -hmm. the automatism and, um, allowing the unconscious to express itself either in visual or written form with these sort of automatic processes, um, unfiltered by the rational mind, then we can sort of begin to process these unconscious shadow aspects so that they're not affecting us in negative ways and being projected outward in negative ways. A lot of alchemical influences upon the surrealists. That's, that's for sure. For sure. Do you feel like you may have rediscovered some of their techniques through your own work and through the development of your own work? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I um after a while of doing paintings that were very uh, symmetrical and sort of planned out and, you know, well thought out in terms of correspondence and everything, I wanted to allow my own unconscious to express itself in that sort of automatic way. And that was when I started doing spontaneous paintings where I would just allow the paint to flow freely to form the basic composition of a painting. And then from there, gaze into it and see what forms and faces and figures might arise and what ideas that those would inspire in me. And then, you know, that dialogue would then be, oh, this looks a little bit like the face of a woman. And so, um, who is the woman? And then I start to do this sort of inner questioning of who's the woman in the painting. And then, you know, messages will come through, um, from spirit through dreams or in different ways. And then I'll learn more about who the woman is. And then I can add on to that figure. Um, but it's a very Mm. wonderful process of self-discovery to allow yourself to create spontaneously like that, whether you're drawing or writing or painting, um, the things that come through can be disturbing, but they can also be really illuminating. And even the disturbing things, I think, sometimes need to be allowed to express themselves. Otherwise, they they can manifest in other ways. And I think that's really the benefit of that surrealist I like that technique. A lot. Yeah, you, you've mentioned using dreams a, a few times now. How do you um, how do you go about uh, utilizing? you know, dream imagery in your work? Do you have a particular, I don't know, ritual or magical practices that you do to like incubate dreams? Or are you just a, or are you not <laughs> just, are you like an, a, a, a vivid active dreamer? Well, like, how does that, how does that work? Um, well, I started recording my dreams when I was 16 and I've done it ever since. Um, though I do go through phases where I don't dream as much and there's different factors that contribute to that. Um, but if I want to cultivate my dreams, if I want to be dreaming more, um, I focus on proper sleep hygiene, you know, and getting to bed at a good hour. Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be helpful to have a disturbance, like 
sometime in the middle of the night, like around three or 4 AM. And I have a cat, so that works out very well. Um, she's always wanting to go in or out <laughs> and waking me up. So, um, that takes care of that. But yeah, sometimes when we disturb our sleep and we wake up, that's the time that we'll remember more from our dreams. So what I'll do is I'll have my phone and I'll just record my voice, you know, and just say what the dream was. And then in the morning mm -hmm. I get to listen to it. And oftentimes I've completely forgotten it by the time I wake up in the morning and I get to listen to this sleepy voice of mine recalling the dream. And then I'll write it down in my dream journal. And then I go through this sort of union mm -hmm. process, which I describe in the second book of, um, underlining all of the different elements of the dream. So places, colors, people, words that are spoken, um, objects, all of these different things have symbolic meaning. They're parts of my own psyche. So I underline all of those. And then I write out my associations, direct associations with each of those things and my personal associations. And then, um, from there you can kind of reread through those associations and get a whole new interpretation of the dream and rewrite that out. So it's like, mm -hmm. there's the dream and then your associations and you write that part out. And then you can, from there kind of come to a general conclusion about what the dream means, like a, just a short statement of like what the dream is conveying. So that's generally how I record and then interpret dreams. Um, and then I'll do Jungian active imagination sometimes to go back into a dream if it feels unresolved or if I need more information. And I don't do that very often, but every once in a while I'll feel called to do that, mm -hmm. um, to communicate directly with the unconscious and yeah, dream incubation. I have done a little bit of, um, I tend to find like whatever I'm studying or reading about, if I do that before bed or like you know, an hour before I go to bed, if I'm like immersed in a certain field of study, um, that will start to inform my dreams and that can get really interesting. So I like to do that as a form of dream incubation. Yeah. And I'm also really into like seeding ideas into the unconscious as I fall asleep. And that's a little different than dream incubation, but it's like, um, living dream incubation, I would say <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, how do you do that? Um, like, is there a technique that you use that, yeah. that we can try at home? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge Neville Goddard fan. And so his technique is basically to, you know, as you're laying there, instead of just falling asleep, you go into a relaxed state and you take, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is that you want to manifest or change or experience. And you just put yourself there in your imagination and try to see it and feel it with as much detail and emotion and sensation as you can and go as far into it as you can. Hmm. Just let the good feelings of having that experience fill you up. And then just sort of like expressing gratitude for that having already passed because you imagine it as though it's already happening and you don't imagine how it's happened or all the steps that it took to get there. Just the feeling of having that experience completed and the joy or whatever it is that it brings you. And then, um, falling asleep with that sense of gratitude. And that's just a really simple, beautiful way to kind of magically, you know, invoke experiences into your reality because you're on that verge of waking and sleeping. And the way that reality is formed is mm -hmm. the conscious mind is essentially inseminating the unconscious and generating forms through that. So the more consciousness we can bring to that process the more likely we're going to be generating experiences and things that we would like to happen rather than, you know, going to bed with a head full of worries and then, you know, having those things catch up with us. That is a really fascinating technique. I'm going to try that. Yeah, let see, me know. See how it works. Let me know if how I, if I win the lottery. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so the thing, and this is largely what I talk about in the second book, is like we're doing this all of the time. We're constantly inseminating the unconscious yeah. with our desires and our wills. And a lot of times it's not for the best, you know? So the more conscious we can become of our thoughts and the words that we're using when we speak and the ways that we react to things, the more likely we're going to be able to 
produce positive results from our manifestations, you know, but also, mm-hmm. um, that's where alchemy comes yeah. in because we have so many like deeply held beliefs, core beliefs about how things are supposed to work, how things do work, what we deserve, um, what we don't deserve that we need to go through this kind of cleansing purification and refinement process on our own internal world on our thoughts and on our emotions, on our reactivity. And these processes of alchemy can help us transmute those so that we're not constantly like just recycling these old stories and frameworks for how we see the world. Yeah. You know, there's something in here that, you know, in in a way it's almost akin to just a basic mindfulness practice. I mean, I guess a basic mindfulness practice Mm -hmm. would definitely be like a, a place to start, you know, just having more awareness of not only like your state of mind, but how you are interacting with that state of mind or how you let that develop. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But this is kind of going a little further in being sort of imaginally active in taking over how, you know, your, your unconscious mind gets started on stuff or gets lodged in uncomfortable places. (laughs) That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the observation, the mindfulness is a big part of it. We need to be able to see what's going on if we're going to do anything about it. And mm-hmm. being present with that and observing our thoughts, observing what happens within us and observing our reactivity, that's a huge part of it. It is. You know, there are a lot of books uh, on hermeticism that have been coming out over the last you know, 10, 15 years, a lot of them sort of veer, veering towards the scholarly or the academic that, uh, you know, and, and some of them, you know, definitely have sort of, um, you know, interesting uh, analyses of the philosophy or analyses of like, you know, what hermeticism and alchemy might mean, but it's rare to find, uh, it's rare to find like really good material that is actually about how to uh, apply and utilize these things. And it sounds like what you've been doing, not only in your life, but what you've shared in the books is kind of um, exactly what uh, we've been needing. So thanks. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. <laughs> that works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So do you feel like, uh, is there a third book? Do you have a third book in you? Is it aching to get out? There is a third book. I haven't quite settled on the focus for it yet. I have a few ideas. Um, mm-hmm. But at the moment, I need a little break from writing to just kind of, well, first of all, there's been a lot of, you know, life has really changed after the first book came out. And so I'm learning how to um, mm-hmm. navigate my new reality and also continue with my creative work. And finally I'm, you know, able to spend some significant time in the studio again, which is really great. And, um, that's kind of where my focus is right now is getting back to my creative process, but also developing some coursework. So that's kind of happening in the background as well. And hopefully, uh, sometime this year I'll have a class that I can offer folks either like introductory class to hermeticism or I'm thinking maybe like going a little deeper into the seven spheres and how to begin a planetary practice or also I would like to do like a four-part class on the alchemical opus in the creative process so those are some things that are in the works but the third book will just have to come along as as it's inspired to come along yeah, I can imagine that after spending spending so much time finishing those up, you're you must be itching to be back in the paint. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was hard. I mean, necessary to take a break from painting, but also very hard for me cuz like I said, it's just two different worlds, writing and painting and um I like to go back and forth between mm-hmm. them ideally. I know a lot of people get introduced to hermeticism through um things that are kind of like you know, only halfway or tangentially hermetic, like the hermetic order of the golden dawn, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think for a lot of people, uh, their introduction to sort of like Western magic or Western occultism comes through something like the hermetic order of the golden dawn. And then as they explore, you know, what, uh, you know, the hermetic portion of that actually means, I think 
they probably get a little surprised and they're like, oh, Hermes Trismegistus wasn't actually telling us to do the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram or to, you know, all of this weird Kabbalah stuff. Do you uh, have practices that uh, that you thought were hermetic before you started doing the exploration or afterwards you're like, is this hermetic? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny that you mentioned the, the Golden Dawn because that was really one of my introductions to magic. Uh, I was working with that book by Israel mm-hmm. Rabardi and um, it's same process. It was like, huh, where does this actually come from? Like when, when was this written? You know, yeah. like <laughs> what is this rooted in? Um, <laughs> and yeah, that was part of, you know, as I was studying alchemy, I was also really studying the occult and magic and um, just kind of wanting to understand how it all fit together. And then, you know, when you get into the Hermetica and like the actual original texts of the Hermetica, there's not a whole lot of magic in them. You know, there's like in the Asclepius, no, no, in the Asclepius, there's references to like Egyptian magic of ensouling statues and, you know, calling down the, um, the gods to embody a statue, but really there's not a whole lot of other references to magic throughout the original Hermetica. And yet, you know, there's these sort of other Mm -hmm. hermetic magical texts that were emerging around the same time, you know, like the Greek magical papyri. And that's like such heavy magic, you know? It is. Yeah. It's very different <laughs> yeah. than... I, I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's very different than like the Corpus Hermeticum, which is a much more mystical, theological, mm-hmm. or philosophical approach. So my own magic, I guess, was informed by some of the more modern hermetic approaches. And over time... You know, even though I've done a lot of ritual and done a lot of planetary magic and a lot of that has been incorporated into my art to sort of become its own form of magical practice. um, At this point, I'm more interested in the true power of the magician, which is, you know, really harnessing the will and purifying the will and purifying the desire so that, you know, we're acting in alignment with divine will. And it's not so much that we're trying to make things happen, but we are um, in alignment with the way things are supposed to happen in their most exalted way. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that does make sense. Yeah. yeah I think um, when I always think back to uh, when I first sort of, in, you know, cause I, I you know, like you, I got started with the Golden Dawn stuff and sort of experienced the Hermetica later. And I think one of the things that always really blew my mind about the Hermetica is there's all this material in there about, you know, it, it's such it's such a mystical approach to things. I mean, it, it's literally a mystical approach to things, I guess, you know, but um, all of the stuff about, you know, ascending back through the spheres like we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier uh, is kind of outlined really plainly there. And it always felt like in the Golden Dawn material where there is stuff about, you know, kind of like climbing back up the tree of life or, you know, the path of return and all that kind of stuff. But it was just so bogged down in technicality and it just felt like they did everything they could to make it sound like it was impossible, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And don't get me started on the organization of that book. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That drove me nuts. Right. (laughs) Oh man. Yes. Uh, I'm actually, uh, you know, I lost my first copy of that book at some point, um, which was filled with like, you know, bookmarks and little tabs and like notes in the margins and stuff. And so the one I have now, it doesn't have any of that in it. And I'm like, this thing is friggin' useless yeah. <laughs> without, without, without my own, uh, horrible system of organization. Like how am I supposed to find anything yeah. in there? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, there's a lot of really thing. useful stuff in, in that in that book and in the golden dawn, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think sometimes like the, the point of it all is maybe lacking a little bit. Like why, you know, why are we doing Mm -hmm. these different things? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think also there is a lack of acknowledgement, um, in some of the golden dawn stuff of the, uh, of the fact that like, it is sort of an art, you know, I mean, there's definitely like the arts and crafts side of it where you're making your own you know, talismans or making your own props and making your mm-hmm. own equipment and stuff. But um, 
But maybe sometimes that level of rigidity hampers the creative side. And I think that the creative side is uh, is kind of crucial to really exploring, you know, the essence or whatever of hermeticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Which yeah. you definitely have down. You've, 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 you've definitely got the creative side down. <laughs> well, we're all creators just by the fact that we're human beings. Like we are endowed with creative capabilities and we can be creative. We are. Whether yeah. we're artists or not, we can be creative in our lives. And the thing I like about hermeticism mm-hmm. and the hermetic, like the original text, like the Corpus Hermeticum and the Coptic Hermetica and all of that is that they do kind of, it's open to your own creativity, you know, reading these texts is a form of initiation in itself. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really tell you exactly what to do, but it gives you, gives your spirit things to kind of, um, contemplate and that's what guides you on the path of initiation is your own intuition and your own guidance that comes from deep within. And these texts just kind of help point us in the right direction and kind of give us a framework to work with. Um, but they don't tell us, you know, recite these words and um, yeah, make these arm movements and, you know, none of that. It's just kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> giving you the basic way to view the world and to view reality that will help you uh, navigate it and also transcend these uh, bonds of fate, you know? Yeah, I think, and the Hermetica in particular, or, the, you know, the what we look at as the Corpus Hermetica in particular is uh, is really good at this because, like, the it literally start, starts, like, the first book in it is a mystical vision, you know, where Hermes or whoever the narrator is is like, well, I got a little sleepy and I sat down and all of a sudden here was this vision and this is all the stuff that happened to me. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. what does this teach me that it's okay to just listen to my imagination sometimes? <laughs> and it's literally kind of saying that it's literally sort of saying like, you know, you should pay attention because these visions or these experiences happen uh, in an interior world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a mm-hmm. wonderful point. And yeah, that it's emphasized in other places in the Hermetica too, where it's like, you know, we need to subdue the senses of the body in order to hear the voice of spirit, basically, you know, to hear the voice of God. And essentially mm-hmm. like that's the, that ties right in with that technique I was talking about of Neville Goddard's of like laying in stillness as you fall asleep and allowing the senses of the body to fall away so that you are completely enveloped in the world of imagination. And, you know, we can do this at any time throughout the day, but just that practice of being able to, um, subdue the senses of the body and be in this sort of bodiless state and get in touch with our astral form and the form that we take when we go into the imaginary realm and to not think of the imaginary realm as just make believe, but as a real place, you know, like things are really happening there and it's, it's valid and, it's not fantasy, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're directing it consciously. So that union between the conscious and the unconscious that happens when you're fully awake and aware, but you're allowing the imagination to kind of take you away into new worlds. Like that's a really beautiful place. And I think the Hermetica do a beautiful job of, of Mm -hmm. revealing that and showing that. It makes me think, you know, you said a few minutes ago, um, about all of us being creators and all of us being creative. Uh, we're doing it even if we're not creating physical works of art or physical things of at all. You know, the, the creation happens first in the imagination. And um, I think we lose, we lose track of that a lot. But the fact that the imagination is such a key component to our, you know, interaction with the physical world and our you know, interaction with ourselves and, and the people around us. Like we should be more aware of what and how we imagine, you know, mm-hmm. be a little bit more active in there instead of just letting it run its own show sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause the imagination can also be a, a terrible thing. <laughs> yes, it can be. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be a, a beast that needs to be wrangled for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, uh, so your first book, uh, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres is available right now. Yes. Uh, from Inner Traditions. Uh, and then your next book, uh, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work, which is kind of a kind of a part two, is uh, coming out this July. Yes. So people should keep an eye out for it. Do you want to tell our audience where to find you on the internet so they can go look at your friggin' awesome art? Yeah. Just in case they forgot from the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can check out my website, which is marlena7bremner.com. And there's links to the books on there. There's um, a page with my entire art gallery so you can peruse the artwork. And there's also a page for prints that you can buy. And I'm also on social media. So you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you just type in marlena7bremner. And... um I have a Patreon where people can subscribe and I have a blog that goes back years and I do these artistic vision posts every time I finish a painting, kind of exploring symbology and my process. And there's other tiers with different rewards, but those start at a dollar a month. So, um, that's a good way to engage and support the work if you're interested and also to, to be in touch with me. And there's, you can contact me through my website as well. Or through dreams. Yeah, or through dreams. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and congratulations on the books and stuff. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Size, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandsize.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.